Hi, I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit. Welcome back, Alicia. We're finally recording. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. And I'm so excited because I saw this last spring or early summer, and I couldn't wait to sit down and talk with talk about it with you, and I had to wait. But that's okay. We're finally sitting <laughs> down, and we're finally doing it because um, <laughs> we had to get through the summer, and you had to be able to watch it and everything. So um, but just to give some background, like in my own personal experiences, experiences with the novel, um, I read Are You There, God, I think in junior high. I know I read it before high school. I did did get it from the library. I did not own it. I owned Judy Bloom's book, Just As Long As We're Together. Hmm. So I read that one, um, but also read Are You There, God? And when I found out the movie was coming out, I was like, I have to reread it. So when I was doing all of my half marathon running, it was on the whole queue of all the books that I was listening to. And I remembered... I remember more about the book than I thought I did. And I was just so pleasantly surprised at how well the movie followed the book. Mm. It took my daughter, my 14 year old went with me. My husband joined us because our son was gone. So he, he decided to just be the single, honestly, the single man in the theater <laughs> with us and two much older women who were sitting behind us. And we just all laughed and enjoyed it. And I got to watch my daughter squirm a little bit because there were some parts that made her uncomfortable, but it's okay. Cause that's all the point. That's the point of the book, right? The adolescence makes us uncomfortable in a lot of different ways. So what about you? So here's what's funny. I was thinking about this. I, some of this connects to why we are talking about this. When we both saw that the movie was coming out, you immediately were excited. And I thought about the fact that I didn't get a copy of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, until I got a signed copy by Judy Bloom at one of my first national English teacher conferences. So, and then I had it and it was on my shelf, but I think I just, it was never in our house. We never read it. I don't know if that's part of because of the stigma around the story or, or what exactly, but just, I didn't read it then until I was an adult. I was flipping through these books and I almost tossed this one and I was like, wait a minute, it's a signed copy. I can't get rid of it. And then ended up sitting down and reading it. And so interestingly, when you got excited about the film, I immediately thought about like, this would be a really interesting story to bring up the topic of censorship, which of course is a topic that is, English teachers, if you're not, if you haven't heard of censorship, if you're not passionate about censorship or have thoughts and feelings about censorship <laughs> in the 21st century, have you been paying attention? Because we're going to talk about some of those stats today. Uh, but no matter what, so that I think that's just what's interesting is it is a story, I think, about you're saying your 14-year-old daughter experiencing this story for the first time. There are definitely parts that make you squirm. But even sitting watching the movie with my partner last night, he was saying more than once, like, doesn't this just make you uncomfortable? I said, that's the thing, though. I think because I experienced it for the first time as an adult, I just relate to it. It, it feels like, oh, my gosh, me too. Oh, my gosh, I feel seen. The amount of times that 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 is the point of good young adult literature, and that that is Judy Bloom at her core as an author. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought that that was an interesting perspective. And you also point out, one of our lit think dilemmas often is one of us experiences something 
and then we have to wait for the other either to have time to watch it or for it to be available on a streaming platform <laughs> for the other to access it. So uh, we'll talk about that with several, I think, stories this season. Uh, but with all of that in mind, our literary terms of the week are going to revolve around censorship, right? Yes. Yeah. So we're going to look at the different elements of censorship, why things are censored, particularly when looking at YA fiction, because I mean, in Indiana, John Green just made the news when it came to censorship. And it wasn't just his book. There were a lot of books of adolescent, young adult writers of all sorts of stories that got pulled from shelves. So um, yeah, we're, we're dealing with this in real time, all the time. Before we even go into talking about what censorship is, if you haven't heard these statistics, people, uh, all of these for us were pulled from the American Library Association. It is kind of the source, especially for teachers, when we're talking about the topic of banned books, especially when it comes to banned books week, one of my favorite weeks in the school year. I, you need to know that in 2022 alone, the list of demands to censor books libraries and library books and resources from 2021 to 2022 almost doubled. We saw a 38% increase from the books that were targeted in 2021 to 2022. So this is not a new issue, but good golly, it is a heated issue right now. I was looking at some of these pie charts and they were saying it used to be you're the main group that contests books, which we'll talk about the difference between challenging and banning books in a minute. But the main group that brings these issues forward is parents. It used to be that a parent would come with one or maybe two books. I don't want my child to be exposed to this story. It is now often that a parent will approach an institution, a library, a school with a list of at least hundred books or more. And then want to go from there of, I need you to remove this pile of books from your institution's resources, not just from my child's access. Well, and it's not just that it's a pile of books. It's a pile of books they haven't read. Yeah. They've been given a list that says that the, there's stuff in this these books and they haven't actually read that, which always reminds me back in undergrad at my Christian university, one of my professors was talking to our, our YA lit class. And she was like, I once had a parent who complained about Lord of the Flies because she opened the book and it said the horn farted. Guys, this is what you're facing. Yeah. <laughs> and it, for all of us who are just kind of like, what? Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I've never actually read Lord of the Flies because I never had to as a teacher or as a student. Yeah. Um, I know it's crazy because my daughter's reading it this year and I'm like, that's the one book I haven't read. Um, But that's just kind of, that's the history behind it, right? That's what teachers have been facing throughout history. And I don't think, I'll be honest, I went a long time without being challenged and I didn't get challenged until I decided I wanted to teach teach the awakening to my AP students. Hmm. And I had a parent who approached me the first night at back to school night to tell me that she did not think it was appropriate that I was going to teach the awakening to my juniors. And so that was, that was my first one. That was my first one. That is so interesting. I'm so curious if that's a generational difference between the two of us, because it was within my first year. Now, granted you and I implemented choice reading within my first year of teaching. And that was something Mm -hmm. that became very near and dear to my heart is offering students choice lists. 
And it was often through the choice list that I've received the most parent anger that their child would pick their top five books. Their child would be assigned a book from their top five of a list of a hundred books. And I would require parent signature of approval for the kid to read the book. And the parent would say, I'm not going to sign off on this. And I would just be say like, okay, your, your kid picked, had so many books to pick from. Can we maybe consider why they were attracted to this story? Can we maybe consider the value of them approaching a story like this in a curated classroom setting where they can discuss their experience with the story instead of experiencing it in isolation. There, there's so many things. Of course, we could go on this for a while, but let's let's rewind. I think before you and I get too heated on our teacher horses, Sarah, what is censorship? Can you define that for me real quick? Okay, so censorship is the suppression or prohibition of any parts of books, film, news, etc., that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. Um, I think one of the most interesting, uh, Ray Bradbury wrote several forewords to Fahrenheit 451 multiple times. Like he, every time it got republished, he wrote a new foreword for the book, it seems like. And I just remember when I first read it as a freshman in high school, the foreword talked about how it had been his book that talks about censorship Mm. (laughs) had had the word damn taken out. Like Mm. that he was seeing his own book that talks about the dangers of taking word uh, words away from people and thoughts away from people was being censored. Um, so that is said that is censorship. Censorship is when you just take parts or all out. You mm-hmm. say you cannot do this. Um, to challenge something is to remove is to say I want this removed. I, I, you, when it's challenged, so when we talk about the, the banned book list, it really is the challenged book list. Mm. The challenged book list is these, somebody said to a library, a public library or a school library or a teacher, we do not want this book in this classroom. We do not want this book in this library. We, we don't want it. And most organizations now legislature has changed this some in different States. Um, but and, until about three or four years ago, uh, most schools and libraries had a very set system for how you had to go, a process you had to go through to challenge a book and get it removed. Like you had to have a certain rationale and it had to go to a board. Like it wasn't just automatically taken off shelves. It had to go through a whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, that process has been expedited in a lot of places because of legislation that's been passed in different states. Um, to ban it then is the actual taking it off the shelves. So if it's challenged, people want it off the shelves. If it's banned, it's taken off the shelves. And I'm going to, I'm going to push a little bit on that definition. Cause I would say a parent saying, I don't want my kid to read this book. That is still documented as a challenge. So yes. banning is, is a mass removal. A challenge can be an individual removal. So both can still end in removal. Um, that's what I think can be interesting. A, a challenge itself, though, often it's going to be a lot lower stakes and it, it, it can escalate to a ban, but it doesn't begin with the ban. You're correct. Like The, it, the challenge escalates to the ban itself. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah. yeah. And, and the challenge is often going to be, if, if a challenge is for, I don't want my kid reading this book, but I don't mind if anybody else does, then that's usually where you end up with having an alternate alternate text right. or you have to have an alternate assignment. I've only had to do that a few times. Mm-hmm. I have not had that happen very many times. Yep. Um, but 
when it does happen, it it ends up being extra work for everybody, including the kid. It almost always ends up being extra work for the kid and the teacher because right. the kid then has to doesn't get the help of classmates right. and discussion and everything else that goes with it. And as a parent, it's so hard when you're a parent. Being a parent and an English teacher who has probably a more liberal view of, uh, and speaking of like how open I am to different, letting my kids read different things. I think not liberal or conservative thing in the traditional sense, but I, you know, I get it. Like there's times I don't want my kids to be reading or watching certain things, but for the most part, I, I trust their teachers to select what they feel is going to be best in that setting. And so it's, but there's, it's so tricky. Well, I was going to say, I think my new parent perspective, I think the biggest thing that I can add to that is I have to trust. If I have put my child in this educational institution, I have to trust, as you were saying, the setting, the atmosphere in which the piece is being approached. While I know that my child might not be ready for specific material, I have to trust both the home atmosphere and the classroom atmosphere that is being created around that text. And that was always what I came back to when parents contested or challenged pieces in my classroom, as I would come back to, I need you to know that your child is not reading this in a vacuum, that there's going to be conversation and discussion around this. And isn't that so much more valuable and important around something that is challenging to them than for them to find this. I mean, I think about the amount of times as a child, our family tradition on Friday nights, often we'd go out to dinner, then we'd go to a bookstore. And I mean, by the late 90s, early 2000s, you go into the YA section, half of those books have sex scenes in them. And I remember I'd pull a book off a shelf, you know, I'd flip to that scene and my face would be bright red. I, I knew I couldn't ask my parents to buy this book for me, but I'm reading this in isolation and then not, and then feeling very ashamed, not feeling like I could talk about it with anyone. Now, am I saying I want my child to be reading pornographic texts in the English classroom? No, but I, that, does that, I hope that distinction makes sense of, I just, I would so much rather, as we do here at LitThink, to LitThink is to say, we need to talk about these things and often talk through them not around them. And that's how we create a richer, more empathetic world for everyone. Well, and I think that brings us to then the discussion of Are You There, God? Is Me, Margaret? Because there are so many things in this book that challenge you as a reader and as a viewer when you're watching the movie. And and I do have to say, like the, the movie adaptation is so true yeah. to the book. It is so true to the book. And I mean, it takes a few typical liberties that you do with film, but it just captures the the events and the characters and the heart of the book so well. Um, and Kathy Bates as her grandmother is just mm. absolutely delightful. Uh, Rachel McAdams <laughs> and Kathy Bates were so perfectly cast. <laughs> That's so good. So good. One thing I would add before you go any further, I think the liberties that the film took, one, we know, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret it began as a journal in the book, right? These are supposed to be journal entries that she's writing. Right. Versus in the book, it's narration as she's processing things. And I think the other thing that the movie did very well is that, as I know you're about to share, this is ultimately a story about the female body. And it actually, the movie actually opened that up even more to give us some more perspective of 
Rachel McAdams, the mother's story, and Kathy Bates, the grandmother's story, in a way that you only get Margaret's perspective in the book. So you don't see kind of this generational battle that in the same scope as you get to in the film. Well, and that goes to female relationships, that you don't get quite the scope of the female relationships that in the novel that you got in the movie because you added Rachel McAdams as her mother and Kathy Bates as her grandmother, who are in the book, mm-hmm. but they don't have quite the voice. They don't have the voice that they have. Because, as you said, it's journal entries, right? So, I mean, she's writing to God and trying to figure things out, and here we go outside of that internal dialogue. So mm. we're, we're seeing the actual story on the outside of that. Um, but it it is about the female body and it is about puberty and it is about the things that are so scary, honestly, about growing up. A lot of the things are so scary about growing up. First kiss, first crush. Um, I haven't started growing boobs yet and what is going to happen to me because I have it. I have, I don't fill my bra. I want a bra because everybody else has a bra, but there's nothing to put in the bra. So, and, and the reverse of that, you know, when they have a classmate who everyone says all these awful things about because she hit puberty early and she's dealing with the opposite side of that, you know, like that. (laughs) And, and I did too. Like I, I wasn't, huge but I, I i hit puberty early and it a little bit earlier than some of my peers and there is there's no perfect time to hit puberty i don't think i don't think anyone ever hits <laughs> no. puberty at, at a perfect time especially for girls i can't i can't speak for boys that's my experience for girls there's no perfect time and it just deals with it so honestly and with humor and 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 humanizes the experience just humanizes the whole experience. So let's rewind again a little bit and let's let's think about you know, are you there, God it's me, Margaret, from the time that it was first published in 1970, was one of the top banned books for decades. And interestingly now, if you look at the top 100 most banned books across America from 2010 to 2019, it's no longer on the list. So you and I were talking before recording, is that because it fell off the radar? Is that because we are respecting Judy Bloom being a retired patron saint of the arts these days. I don't know, but I think we do need to first acknowledge the top three reasons why books are most often banned. I think this could be an interesting connection then to Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret. Um, these top three reasons are either the material is considered to be sexually explicit. Okay, well, there's puberty. The material contains offensive language. Well, there's some really interesting dialogue around religion, especially, and just spirituality, as thinking about, we so often assume a blended family is either a family of divorce or a family that is multiracial or multicultural. Well, the multicultural distinction in Are You There, God is Me, Margaret, is she has a Jewish father and a Christian mother. Uh, And there's therefore a really interesting perspective around conversion and religious right and inheritance and culture among her grandparents as they relate to her. The offensive language there is, I know there are Christian groups that have contested this book. And then the third reason is the material is unsuited to any age group. So again, a child who has not even been taught about puberty, you hand them this book, they might be like, I can't, I can't. Or like, I don't know what's going on. 
Or, but I think, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Even though the audience for this, the intended audience for this book would be girls who are 10 years or older. And that's when girls are hitting puberty, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to the many decades long aversion to talking about something that happens to everyone. It gets put in a class, like you you have, and, and they show that scene in the movie and it's shown, shown in the book too, where all the girls are put into a room and they have to learn about what's going to happen to their bodies, even though they all have heard rumors. They don't quite understand it, but they've all heard rumors about what this is supposed to be. Some girls have already gone through it and had their period. Some of the girls haven't gone through it and had their period. Um, and so it that is the way it has been for generations that it's just this taboo topic that people know is there, but don't want to talk about. And then to have it in a book and hand it to children, mm-hmm. even though it's their reality. And even though God forbid a boy get a hold of the book and a boy should know that that's what happens to a girl too, <laughs> you know, that how, how can we have these honest conversations? Mm-hmm. And so that is, it, it fits all the boxes. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. And talking about, I, I did not remember this when I reread the book. I did not remember that they got their hands on a Playboy magazine. <laughs> like I, I didn't remember that. Yeah. And I was like, and I honestly, when I read it, I probably at the time didn't put two and two together. Mm-hmm. I just was that naive that I would, and that, unaware of a lot of different yeah, things that I just yeah, never put, reference. I went to put two and two together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think no matter what you bring up this really important and crucial point, the reason why you and I value this story, like talking again from the beginning of the episode to now is that you and I could read it as people assigned female at birth, identifying as female and say, Oh my gosh, me too. In some way, there is a diverse enough perspective of, the female perspective around puberty and the female experience around puberty, that there was some part of the story that we could relate to. And so this unsuited to any age group, whether these, a reader is prepubescent, pubescent or postpubescent, there's something in the story that can connect to their body or their, their cultural experience. But that is also what has made people afraid of this story for so long. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, between the honest conversation about uh, puberty and everything changing. So there's that honest conversation, mm-hmm. which people don't want to have. Well, and I, I thought just interesting perspective to the fact that th- this is a story for the female perspective of puberty. We're also talking about menstruation. There were very specific camera angles of someone would be in a bathroom it, they would wipe or they would look down at their underwear. They would see something, but you know, you as the audience never saw the menstrual blood. And I was so curious, would that be a rating issue for this film or not? Just, it was a thought that passed my head. Maybe, but I also think it was just, I think it's just understood, right? Yeah, it's it was not needed. The implication is It's there. unnecessary. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was totally understood that way. But just thinking about Judy Bloom's career then, and she has, especially with the film, did a lot of press around the topic of censorship and how it has shifted in her lifetime. And, you know, how Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was one of her first books she published. And it was so widely banned, even the school that her children attended refused to have a copy. 
on in the school library because they were so against it. But I love the flip side of that is her son one day said to her, mom, just wait until these people who are reading your book, the children who are reading your book now are adults in Hollywood. And this is now it's over 50 years later. This is the first of her books that's ever been adapted into film. And you and I both know, right. We know Judy Blume for so much more than this. This is one of her many books. I haven't even looked up. Let me do, let me do the Google real quick, Sarah. How many books has Judy Blume written? (laughs) I honestly don't know. I don't know. I have not read nearly all of them. I've only read a handful of them. I probably have read more Beverly Cleary books than Judy Bloom books, honestly. Later. It's more than 11. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But um, so all that to say, I think just coming back to this, this issue of censorship, I think the biggest thing that you and I can say when we're connecting this to our experience as, as teachers and as parents What's so unfortunate in the current battle of censorship is that the amount of people who are at the forefront and are uninformed, they either have not exposed themselves to the media that they are trying to protest, or they they have an unrealistic perspective of the world. I just, the amount of times a parent would say, my kid can't read this book because of this issue or this piece of language is you're trying to tell me this is going to be their first ever exposure to the word damn. I, I can't, I can't believe that. And I'm sorry. So that's because I'm an educator in the internet age, but some of that's also because I know your kid in class. <laughs> this is not who they are. Well, okay. First of all, it's 25. I just got it. Okay. Um, it's 25 books. Thank so you. now it's over 25. Better she people is still me. writing, but she's for the most part, a re- retired. Um, retired. But I think this kind of brings us back to this whole concept of lit think and the fact that, you know, we want to talk about how we watch media and we talk about media and we don't watch media in a vacuum. Mm. You know, when we sit down to watch something, we, we, sh- it should provoke discussion. It should provoke mm. conversation. It should get us to ask questions. And, how fantastic would it be for both educators and for parents? It'd be great for, for educators if our kids were coming to our classrooms doing this, like just naturally doing this. But I think about all the really good conversations that we have in our house about things that we've watched. And the conversation does not stop when we turn off the TV. The conversation continues on in the car at bedtime, sometimes just sitting there while we're watching and having to pause because somebody had a question and wanted a clarification on something. And when you're not willing to take the time to think about all the themes and all the ideas and the implications, and you're just looking at it on the face value, yeah, things can be scary. Like, I'll be honest, as a Christian parent, the, the idea that you're going to have a book that talks about questioning your faith when you're 12 years old and then going and and going to church at different places and going to synagogue and and going to different Christian churches. That can be a very scary thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have to be open to those questions because if we close those questions off, 
then they're going to get resolved in ways we don't want them to be resolved. We thought we want them to be resolved with us and we want us to be able to have not control, but the opportunity to guide through those questions. And to push even more, we want to inspire lifelong curiosity. As we yeah. look statistically at the amount of people in the workforce who, have, who do not have basic problem-solving skills, it's because they don't have innate curiosity. And so the way you inspire that curiosity has to be exposure, but it, it's what you were saying. It has to be exposure that's not in a vacuum. The, um, one of my favorite books that I read when I was pregnant with my first child was How to Raise a Feminist Son by Sonora Ja. I heard it on an NPR recommendation driving to work one day. And I was like, oh, God, buy it. <laughs> Random NPR book recommendation. But anyway, she, now a generation ahead of me as a parent, proposed this revolutionary idea that really for at least the first 10 years of your child's life, they should not be watching media in isolation. You should be encouraging that anything they want to watch, you're going to co-watch with them. And the reason for that is because then you are creating a safe space for conversation. If you see something on the screen that you also might react to, or that you know what your kid is being exposed to, then you can have a real conversation with it. I had so much more respect for the parents in my room who would say, Hey, I'm co-reading the book that you guys are reading as a class. And I have some questions that I'd like to ask because I'm not in your classroom on a daily basis. That was a, a so a much healthier conversation that I could have with the parent than someone who's just coming to me and saying, I Googled these five books on your list and I've decided that they are unacceptable, right? So yeah. yes, I, I agree that ultimately the, the concept of censorship, the opposite of censorship is curiosity. And realistically, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, at its core is a story that is grounded in curiosity. It, it, it's a story that's grounded in curiosity about ourselves, mm -hmm. faith, growing up, mm -hmm. the way we relate to each other. Mm -hmm. I, it just, it really is. And again, I didn't remember how much it was until I reread the book. And then watching the movie just helped to bring that point home. And normally we're just going to talk about the piece, right? But I think for us, it was really important for us to talk about this important issue of censorship as well with this particular episode. And we really wanted to approach it because this is something that a lot of us parents and teachers and, and everybody are facing and asking questions about. And that's where we want to land. We want to land in curiosity and guided curiosity. And the guided curiosity should happen both at home and at school. Mm -hmm. And I cannot emphasize, and I know it's hard. I cannot read every book my kids read. Mm. I can't. I, I can't watch. I can't be there with them when they watch everything. Mm -hmm. But if you can have a setting that is honest enough that they feel free to bring those things to you and bring those questions to you, and you have set up a relationship where they are going to ask you those questions as they're reading something that makes them think about stuff. It's just going to have kids that can think more critically mm. that are not going to go on the attack on social media mm. because they're going to be able to see multiple perspectives and be like, maybe I want to take a step back and maybe I don't need to be a keyboard warrior and mm. maybe I don't need to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I just think 
we can raise more empathetic and intelligent and thoughtful children by opening up their world. And I think that that's something that we really want to do. And that's, isn't that, again, lit think curiosity conversation ultimately leads to empathy. And that's what we're here for. Yeah. Okay, Alicia. So what have you been doing to broaden your curiosity and your world recently? <laughs> so the two pieces that I wanted to talk about, both of which I'd say are, are, are the best kind of fluff for me. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed them. They talk about some really beautiful issues but I still, I'll start with the book. I still really stand by my theory that the rom-coms of the nineties have been rehoused in the romantic genre section of the bookstore. And Emily Henry <laughs> is a perfect example of that. I know probably from the first 50 pages, who's going to end up with who I have an idea of how they're going to end up with each other. I'm still here for it because it's witty. It's reverent and reverent isn't like it's reverent to the tropes of romance. It's lighthearted. It's relatable. And uh, that was very true. I felt my favorite of her books I've read recently is Book Lovers. I just had a lot of fun with it. So um, I've really been enjoying the audiobooks of hers and been bemoaning a lot with one of my friends that on my Libby app, I will put a million books on a hold when I think of it. And then they all show up as available to borrow at the same time. And yeah, I'm having that problem right now too. Then what do you do? It's like, I don't, I only have so many hours in the day. Ah! So needless to say, I was very thankful this afternoon for, uh, I had to mass create some social media posts for one of my clients. And that meant that I could have podcasts and audiobooks on in the background. And so I was just checking things off my list. It was great. <laughs> uh, but then as far as media, I was turned to the show this summer. I turned pretty on Amazon prime by one of my best friends and she's a huge fan of the books. I've not read the books, uh, but I am really enjoying the TV show. It does a lot to talk about grief and it, it is ultimately a love story, but it's also a story about grief and identity. Excuse me again, especially the summer I turned pretty. It means this person was a nerd and then prepubescent suddenly is beautiful. And how do you handle that? And, yeah, it, it's just, it's it's well done. Highly recommend if you want something that's not exactly lighthearted, but is is profound and fun and teen drama. The Summer I Turned Pretty. Good stuff. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? Um, well, first of all, Emily, I see so many people reading Emily Henry books, and <laughs> I know I need to put her on my queue, but I had the same problem. Like, I saw this all these recommendations, and I put them all on my Libby app. And then they all arrived at the same time. And yep. so I'm really trying to figure out what I'm going to do because there's all these podcasts I want to listen to right now. So I'm having some major media overload right now <laughs> um, on my phone <laughs> trying to figure out what am I going to time? I'm back at school. I don't have time for this. Media FOMO, is that your? <laughs> I cannot listen while I'm working with students. That's not, what? that's frowned upon. Um, so speaking of podcasts, I was listening occasionally and she's not a regular episode, a regular podcast I listen to, but occasionally I listen to Sharon says so she's the government teacher that like exploded mm -hmm. on, 
um, Instagram, and she has a fantastic podcast that just looks at all the different angles of, of history. And she had David Truer on, who is the author of The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. And I mean, we've talked about Wounded Knee yeah. as teachers because we both use Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee for a couple of years. I used it as like a post. We just read, we just studied the Holocaust. So now we're going to look at American Holocaust in, in many ways. And we're going to look at Wounded Knee. Um, but it's a really dense book. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. It has a lot of really good information in it. But it's looking at the, the long history of indigenous cultures in, in North America and doesn't see Wounded Knee as kind of like the pinnacle of everything, but instead sees Wounded Knee as a part of the story. And then after doing all the background history, going all the way up to Wounded Knee, then talks about what has been happening in the 20th and 21st century hmm. with all the different tribal cultures in the United States. Um, it's been really interesting. It's very dense. Uh, it, it's a great... Uh, supplementary text if you're trying to learn more about indigenous culture and indigenous history he his he has an interesting story because his mother is native american but his father was a jewish holocaust survivor Mm. who just ended up on a reservation because like they were the only people that would accept him after Mm -hmm. he got like he just felt really accepted by the tribal culture after he came to the united states after the war so yeah just a fascinating history that that's his background Mm-hmm. Um, so that is really intellectual and it's been dense on the non-intellectual side counteract that <laughs> to counteract that we are really enjoying the show Yellowstone because we just and it, maybe it's just to build up to our plans to go to Yellowstone National Park next summer for our summer vacation but my husband was like you know everybody keeps talking about how Yellowstone is so good we just have to sit down and watch it and I was just like I don't know I mean yeah I heard it was really good but I'm not really into a cowboy story right now and we can't stop <laughs> we are in binge mode all the characters are terrible human beings and we are fight- we are fighting hard to find redeeming qualities in these people, but the storytelling is so good. And Kevin Costner, God bless him, he does the old curmudgeonly cowboy like proud. He it's like he took his role from Dances with Wolves and decided, you know what? I'm not gonna save people. I'm just gonna be an awful rancher. And became that, and it just uh, he's he's he is very good, and I'm really enjoying him in it. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a ride. So I and you have a whole list of things you want me to watch, and I'm just gonna have to wait until we're done getting coffee, Yellowstone, because I'm not gonna get be able to get him to watch anything else until Yellowstone is done, or until we're at least caught up on the current season, which is. I think paused because of the writer's strike and the actor's strike. So um, as awful as that situation is, it is going to give us a little bit of a hiatus <laughs> for a couple of things. So anyway. We may have to um, backlog deep dive and that that's okay because I support writers being paid equitably. Let's absolutely right. Let's make sure that our, our work is, worth it and speaking of curmudgeon isn't like 19 it's called 1920 or something it's the prequel to yellowstone yeah apparently there's Ford. now two prequels okay well one of them and, is just important that, so that's what matters yes me. and we want to watch both of those now as well because 
again, apparently we're doing research for our trip next summer. I was going to say. Um, you fictional guys... research for our trip next summer. <laughs> we got in a um, dive that is deep. Good luck. <laughs> well, and I, I guess one of the, one of the two prequels takes place in Texas. And, and now we, we love watching stuff about Texas because we can actually visualize it now. And yeah. so after living there for so long, we're just kind of like, oh, yeah, we can kind of see this. And, and so we're looking forward to that. But we have to do one at a time. So we're going to finish Yellowstone first, and then we'll get to the prequels. So, And then someday Sarah will do her homework for lifting. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fall break. I'll do it during fall break in October. And this is the beauty of the reality of you and me being attracted to similar and yet different things. And this is how we create the list that is our lifting episodes. But with all of that in mind, people, please don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Thing Podcast. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter. And remember, this November, you can see us in person at the NCTE conference. In Columbus, Ohio. Woot! So, come and join us in Ohio. <laughs> this has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lit thinking, people.